from the entertainment capital of the world, Las Vegas. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway, for Creator Talks, the interview show for comic book aficionados. Special interview this week, this just in, an interview with not one but two, Chip Sadarsky and Jason Wu. Chip is a household name with work on such titles as the creator-owned Sex Criminals, Daredevil, Howard the Duck, and Spider-Man Life Story. Joining me for this interview is his Canadian co-creator, also from Toronto, Jason Liu. He created, wrote, and drew The Pitiful Human Lizard. These two talented creators came together for the first time to produce a comic book distributed through Comixology, the creator-owned Afterlift. It is the story of a young woman who is working for a share-writing app, Cabot, picks up a gentleman, and ends up on the highway to hell. This story won an Eisner Award, Schuster Award, and a Harvey nomination. And now it will be available through bookstores starting February 2nd. It's being distributed through Penguin Random House and through comic shops on February 3rd through Dark Horse Comics. Why buy the hard copy if it's still available on Comixology? Well, we talk about why some people still want to have that hard copy in their hands and what additional content will be contained therein. And since the story of Afterlift deals with the afterlife, I ask their thoughts on what lies beyond. Sometimes it gets serious, but oh, there's plenty of fun too, because I ask Chip and Jason nine questions I like to ask my guests to learn more about them, including their beverage of choice, that missed opportunity, and a guilty pleasure, and some idea what is next for them. So please now join me in welcoming Chip Zdarsky and Jason Liu. Here now on Creator Talks. Chip, welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jason, welcome. Thank you. You've both known each other for what, like over a decade? Oh, God. Yeah, it's so weird. 2003? Yeah. It it was my third year in Sheridan College as an intern for his studio. It's weird because I always just pictured Jason as a kid. (laughs) 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 And now I'm realizing we're both just fully grown adult men. What was your impression of each other when you first met? Jason, you first. What went through your mind when you met Chip? I want to hear this. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> hate to put you on the spot, but yeah, share. <laughs> I met Chip through my first contact into interning for his studio was through Kagan McLeod. Uh, and they both worked for a national newspaper in Canada. I just remember seeing... Some of the interesting, like, wild sides of ship at conventions. <laughs> oh, now do tell. What did you see? <laughs> and ship, do you uh, remember any of this? <laughs> barely. Very, like, just wild personality. And, and me coming in as, like, this very shy intern, it was very hard for me. I was so intimidated to, like, try to measure up to that level of an excited personality. Ah, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, I'm very intimidating. (laughs) Especially since I was trying to still figure things out in the industry and all. And uh, Chip and, like, his studio mates, they were, like, the first professionals of an industry that I wanted to be in that I got to interact and learn from. But at the same time, like, there'll just be some, like, wild things, and especially, like, taking photo references in the studio, like, in a hallway or stuff. Like, cartooning is, like, really fun. Like, I knew, like... Cartooning was fun when I decided to be working in comics. Seeing their approach, I was, wow, yeah, this is like 
truly fun and wild and exciting. It's one of those things where like start a studio with your friends and you're all kind of barely adults and you're working, but you're, you're having fun. Like you're hanging out with friends all day. And when we started to bring in interns, I think there was some concern that like we would just make it all seem too much like a joke. <laughs> But out of the group of interns that we received, like Jason seemed pretty clearly professional right from the outset. He was great with critique and he was great with the tasks that we gave him and uh, he was eager. And like after he left that internship and he started producing comics on his own, it was pretty obvious that there was something special there. And uh, he had a drive that most students and uh, people coming out of art school maybe don't have. And now after all those years, here you are together working for the first time on Afterlift. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Mm -hmm. And it was what, right after you wrapped up the pitiful human lizard, Jason, that uh, you had the chance, the opportunity to work on Afterlift? Yeah. So I was working on my own series for about five years, did 22 issues writing and drawing on on my own and had a, a falling out with a publisher and... I was at this moment where it's like I was just feeling down about like comics. And back when I was working on Pitiful Young Lizard, I was doing like eight pages a day. And then I felt so down on myself. It was hard for me to do like a page a week. And then a month later, after like releasing the last issue of Pitiful Young Lizard, Chip emailed me out of the blue and he was like, hey, like, how would you like to be the artist for like my new story? And... That was this big opportunity for me, like seeing Chip progress in comics. Like I remember when he was self-publishing his own series, Monster Cops, and then he was like just really killing it with Sex Criminals, and then Howard the Duck and a bunch of other Marvel stuff, Star Lord, and I was like, this is like an awesome opportunity to like work with a guy that that I've known early on that's making it big in an industry, and to use that platform to help showcase my talent i gotta like really bring my game on and he warned me you're gonna be drawing lots of cars and i, like, I'm, I, I don't care i'm gonna draw as many cars <laughs> perfected i'm gonna just give me a month i'm gonna nail it and i won't let you down really every week i'll just show him uh, a bunch of drawings that i've done to just get some <laughs> a sense of approval you said you were doing <laughs> before this like eight pages a day you're fast with the style I was working with, how to capture just enough of the essence of visual storytelling in a very expedient way. That really helped. I work a full-time job, so whenever I would have a weekend off, that's where I'll be like, okay, I can take Saturday where I will spend time to work on six to eight pages and then Sunday and I'm off on Monday. I'll do the same as well. That was my approach of time management. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I, I can't even imagine being that fast. Fast and good. Uh, yeah, that's the thing. Fast and nice. And good. As nice is important, nice. too. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, I can't play any video games or, or watch as much of the shows I would like to watch. All I knew was comics and just my own comics. Well, let's talk about Afterlift. Janice Chen, she quits her finance job and does a ride-sharing job for Cabot. So she picks up this guy, and he's really a demon, Dumu, and he calls her a ride, and he also picks up Susanna along the way to hell. So the car is being chased by demon bounty hunters who are after both of them. The car is outside the real world, so it can't be affected 
or affect other objects around it. And they're on their way to the midway, the point where you cross over from this plane into the next, into heaven or hell. And that's just the start of this wild, wild ride. And the whole setup, the whole beginning of this was this ride-sharing app. The gig economy has really taken off. Even during the pandemic, more people are out there doing things like that, entrepreneurs trying to find ways to get by. I think that's something everybody can identify with just off the bat, besides existential questions about what lies beyond. Either one of you, both of you, work any kind of gig jobs early on, outside of comics, just to get by? Not, I mean, I'm too old to have been a part of the gig economy, like the app uh, uh, economy. All, all of my kind of jobs growing up were like coffee shops, McDonald's, hardware stores, you know, retail service jobs. You know, there's a lot of discussion the other day just about like raising the minimum wage and how it's going to increase the price of a Big Mac or something like that. And the hardest jobs I ever had were the ones that paid minimum wage. It kind of blows my mind that people think that that low amount is what should be paid to people working the jobs that actually are some of the hardest to work. I feel like while I don't have direct experience with gig economy, except as a consumer sometimes, I can only imagine that it's not the kind of living where you can sleep at night knowing that you're financially secure, which is a hard feeling that I think everybody has at some point in their life, unless you're born into wealth. I was very fortunate enough to have my mom suggest that I volunteer at the public library when I was 13 and 15. To the point where, like, they just hired me. Amazing. And, and, yeah, it, it was easy back then, too. Like, over a decade ago, now you have to go through HR and stuff. But I've always worked at the library as a library page and then working my way up doing checking in and checking out reference work, stuff like that. I've just been very fortunate to have that kind of job, that stability, so I can focus on the comics and, like, freelance gigs, this freelance editorial illustration work, but... I'm pretty lucky to not go through the gig economy. I had no idea that you, obviously I knew you worked for the library. I had no idea that it started such a young age. Like That's kind of amazing. Yeah, I, I'm quite a veteran where, where I've seen like the generation of staff. Like When I started there, it was like a lot of old ladies that worked yeah. there. And then seeing the gradual change of generations, uh, like seeing even like, the kids of those old ladies getting the library jobs and like seeing more people around my age or even gradually even younger get that job. It's become more diverse now. It's not just old ladies now, me. <laughs> there, 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 there are people I can talk to about comics and, and video games. Back to the story, you know, besides uh, Cabot and the whole app for the setting of this thing, uh, we get into a lot of thoughts about the afterlife and what lies beyond. And in writing and drawing this story for both of you, I'm just wondering what religious upbringing or knowledge did you add to make this a unique story about the afterlife? How did it influence the direction of the story where you ultimately wanted to take it? In my household, my father was agnostic and my mother was a lapsed Catholic, which basically meant we had to go to church when somebody died. And we'd have to go to church for like a month or whatever until mom stopped wanting to get up on Sunday mornings. I had a year of Catholic school as well and Christian camp. I moved away from that, yet still managed to retain the Catholic guilt. Which is <laughs> great. It was pretty limited in terms of religion when I was younger. For something like this, I ended up kind of going down a rabbit hole of various religions and their concepts of the afterlife, kind of going back through history. And part of the decision 
writing this was how much of that I should pick at. You don't want to write about stuff you don't know. And a lot of times with comics, like you don't have a lot of time to become an expert in things. So I tended to kind of focus a bit more on Catholicism and Christianity, touching upon a few other religions, which was made easier once I kind of realized that we would be viewing the afterlife through the lens of the people going there. So that helped a lot. I was uh, raised Catholic. Both my parents are Catholic and go to church every Sunday. I'm very familiar with all the elements of Christianity and especially while going through Catholic school and through elementary to high school. When I was going through the scripts that Chip wrote, there was a line about the afterlife. I think that Dumu said something about how the afterlife, it's an amalgamation of all the beliefs around the world. Like almost everyone's right in the world. And so it's like a melting pot. There can be like a lot of ideas that can be on the table here that we can bring out in this series. When it came to like conceptualizing the demons in the book, like instead of them being like the conventional devils of being all red with double horns and a tail, why don't we play around with these ideas, the looks? And I got inspired by some of the demon masks in Indonesian antiquities, since I'm in Indonesian. These antiquities that my uncle had hung at his home. And I was always fascinated whenever I would come over to my cousin's house to play G.I. Joe's whatever and they were like just very bizarre to me they have like just very interesting features of like the crooked fangs and bulbous eyes and even like just a lot of like fur around the heads and just playing around with these elements for our demon characters give a more refreshing take of something that we would be familiar with but it's just refreshing to see a new approach of these designs? Yes. I found it very interesting, and I could really connect with a lot of that because uh, I grew up raised Catholic and went to Catholic school all the way through high school and then Jesuit college. And then uh, later on, I got really interested in Buddhism. And you have elements of both in there. I thought that was really cool how they kind of came together because uh, there are some similarities. And as you said, this world kind of is a melting pot of all of that, that everything's right. For each of you, what do you think lies beyond? What is your own personal philosophy, if you care to share it? Ooh. Boy, heavy. Um. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I go there. Sorry. <laughs> we'll get back to light stuff, too. Don't worry. I always thought about that idea that we brought out to Afterlift. We're like, not everyone's wrong. In high school, we had a world religion class where we got to study different religions. And I was thinking, like, some of these concepts might be right as well. And maybe we're all seeing the same vision of 20 or 100 different elements that are just interpreted differently by other cultures having something like afterlife this is pretty close to like how i kind of see the afterlife i have no idea (laughs) (laughs) just no idea like part of the research i was doing for the book it was interesting just kind of discovering like all across the world religions that never really kind of crossed over touched each other still had a lot of things in common a part of me while kind of reading up started to think like well The fact that they all have certain elements in common, for the most part, like that would indicate that there might be something that ties them all together, something bigger that maybe there is something beyond all this. And we get hung up on the details here. Things get twisted as people try and interpret what they believe the afterlife is. It always blows my mind that there's so many different facets to each of the the major religions. You know, you look at Christianity and all the... uh, I was going to say spin-offs like it's a TV show but you know <laughs> <laughs> 
the basic rules intact, but then all the tinier rules and interpretation of like kind of original verse and, and people believe so strongly in those. For me, it, it kind of falls down there when you kind of think that yours is the right one for some reason, um, even though it's been in the hands of mankind, which is uh, wholly fallible. That's a long way for me to say I'm probably agnostic, but I know what I know and I know what I don't know, and I don't know what happens after we die. So uh, I tend to live my life uh, that way, which the downside to that is I'm incredibly sad when people die, mm. like incredibly sad, like destroys me. The thoughts of loved ones dying just uh, guts me on a level that is too much, really. And, and part of that is the fact that like deep down, I think that they're gone fully and that I wish I had that kind of belief in something past this life. The people that I've lost exist on another plane somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I really brought the room down. <laughs> no, no, that's all right. I, I appreciate both of you sharing your thoughts on that. And I don't want people to get the wrong impression. This is a really fun story. I mean, it's got a wild, wild car chase, lots of demons. The art's fun. It's not like real heavy and graphic and gory. It's just fun. And uh, it's a lot of action and a lot of great dialogue. But there are some things in there, some ideas, some philosophies, and there is a thread in the story. I don't want to give away anything to anyone that hasn't read this yet, but that thread is very important, and it will represent something that is also very important, too. It's a fun book. It's a great read, and I urge people to check it out. It's not heavy, but there are some, you know, some things that are in there that make you think about what lies beyond and how we deal with that. And it started out digitally, and now Dark Horse is going to put it in print so you can actually read it both in comic stores and in bookstores through Penguin. So this is pretty exciting. And this is a multi-award winning story. Eisner Award winner for Best Digital Series. Schuster Award winning and a Harvey nominated. So man, that's great. It couldn't have gone better if we planned it. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, with all those awards, did that have some impact on that being released as a physical book? Did that help with that? I know that these kind of deals, because Comixology has a deal with Dark Horse now, and those kind of deals take a fair amount of time. <laughs> so I think that was well underway before we won the Eisner. But I think that helped make it so we were the first that they're putting out in print of Comixology's catalog, which is a huge honor and just the tiniest amount of pressure on us to perform well so other people get their books in print. It was really unexpected because when we signed up to do the book with Comixology, it was for digital. And there was a clause about print and it would be like print on demand through the Amazon's website. And none of us were ever able to really kind of work out the kinks to it. And it always seemed like a very much a minor side thing and digital being the main focus. When they approached us about doing this deal with Dark Horse, it was like, oh, this is the best of both worlds. Like we had the excitement of putting something out digitally, which is faster, you know, illustrating a book and lettering it. And it can be in readers' hands the next day if you want. We have the thrill of that. And then we also get the kind of the deluxe treatment through Dark Horse. And then the final product looks great. Like Dark Horse did a great job with the design and spot gloss on the cover, which I love and cool features. We've really lucked out. And there's more in there for people beyond those who read it digitally. If you want to get a hard copy, if you have, if you've already read it, or if you haven't read it, this has more. We have Jason's sketches, and Chip, you have a commentary. I'm wondering, the commentary, is that after the story? Are they footnotes, margin notes? How are you doing that? We did that after um, we completed the story, just to kind of like explain the process to the readers. Just as a reader, it's interesting, but I think also a lot of readers are interested in the idea of writing or drawing their own comics. So kind of the uh, 
you know, the thought process behind. Yeah, exactly. Is there a soundtrack for this book? Is there something you would recommend a pairing with Afterlift? Ooh, I don't know, Jason. I don't know any tracks that would be specific with the story itself, but like there were like some repeated tracks that I would play on Spotify while I was just working on it. And like one of them was uh, by Mariba, who has a song called Black Truck. And it just has this good momentum and this good groove as I'm just working away, drawing these pages. For me, for the most part, I write to the kind of the same soundtrack. I'll mix it up every once in a while. But I know for Afterlift, I went deep into um, the soundtrack for the TV show The Leftovers, which is my favorite show. And the soundtrack was by this German composer named Max Richter. I've put together a very sad, (laughs) because the show is quite sad, a very sad playlist of uh, instrumental music to make me weep while I draw or write. (laughs) It's, It's great. It's great. I highly recommend it. And it's interesting uh, that you went from the digital to the print. And the comics industry is tough, especially with rising prices, cost of making comics, shipping, distributing. 2020 was a wild year for that with a lot of changes. Do you think the future comics will inevitably go this direction, kind of what you have done, where you start digitally, as you did, and then if there's enough demand, then it would, as Dark Horse has done, then go to print? Do you think we're looking at that down the road, that, that we might wind up that way in terms of comic publishing? I think there's a strong case for it. One thing I've noticed working for several years in the industry is a move towards comics in a collected format as an art object. People really push for omnibuses, omnibuy, omnibuses, mm-hmm. um, and, and then really deluxe uh, treatments of the books that they like. Kickstarter's been great for that. You know, I think about Charles and Ryan's Curse Words collection and how well that did. And then the single issues, like there's a nostalgia for them. And, you know, I'm part of that. I have a nostalgia for them. But as an object, they obviously don't stand the test of time. And they're not necessarily ones you put on a shelf. Digital is a a means to kind of replace single issues and then collections for the people that enjoy the physical product. I think makes a lot of sense. I say that as a person who makes a a good living off single issues, Mm -hmm. you know, working for for the company. So I, I don't want them to go away because it's also like a huge part of comic stores income. But... I think most shops would be well served to shift over to being a bookstore that specializes in comics. That's how I take them now as a consumer. I read the single issues digitally. If I like them, then I buy them in collections. The best stores, um, the most successful ones I've seen, they diversify quite a bit. I mean, they have the kids section, they have statues, they have toys, they have trade paperbacks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Some of them have game nights. So they're not just putting out the new books and have some back issues. They have a lot of different things for all age groups, all walks of life, and a place for people to go and interact and have a kind of a social event too. I can't do that right now, but as they would have with gaming and that, or even book clubs, people get together and talk yeah. about the book. Yeah. yeah. It, it's similar to like, you know, we talk about comic book conventions, but they're not actually comic book conventions anymore. They're pop culture conventions yeah. with a wide variety of merchandise and uh, genres and things happening. And comic shops kind of reflect that now. There's the section for the single issues, but the rest of it is like Jason said, Funko Pops or action figures or things tied into the movies that comics are based on. My favorite store is in Toronto and it's called The Beguiling. They have set out to not have any of that like they are just comics and graphic novels like there's no toys in there the owner's a bit of a snob like he just won't have it (laughs) (laughs) 
But as a result, they're one of the only shops I've known in the past few years that have actively grown, like expanding the size of the shop, creating a whole separate shop just aimed at kids' graphic novels. I think we need more of that uh, happening out there to support the actual books. Yeah, you can't count on the other items in the store. People saying, I like this Funko Pop. Maybe I'll go pick up that comic too. They may not. They might just stay in that lane and that's what they like to do. They want to collect things. They want to watch the TV shows. They want to watch the movies. And maybe they don't cross over into the books. Some do. But yeah, it's nice to have places that are just dedicated to readers. I'm wondering too, and you don't have to share any specific numbers, but with print comics, we often see even the most successful First issue, you get your order numbers, and then the second one goes down a bit, and they tend to go down a bit unless there's a major event or a change-up on the teams that makes the book spike up again. With digital, have you received feedback that it's more of a flatter number where it doesn't start with one high and then go down? Is it kind of steadier versus the print? They haven't shown us, I mean, I could probably request it, the actual digital numbers, but the difference between digital and print is um, the single issues are just off the rack after a certain point. Mm -hmm. They're in a dollar bin or they're gone. They're ordered to sell. Retailers order them so they don't have any left by the end, preferably, because they buy them outright. Unlike in the old days when they could return them to the uh, the comics companies and the magazine companies. With digital, they're around forever. And, you know, Comixology decides to just put up an ad saying, hey, check out Afterlift. We'll, we'll just get a bunch of new readers on mm-hmm. it without having to print more. So I think there's the initial burst. Uh, of people trying something out, but there's a bigger chance of bringing people back to the product because of how easy it is to purchase at any point in time. They can just hit subscribe to the series and the next issue should be like waiting on queue, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they send you an email when it's going to be out. They'll tell you, okay, you're being charged for this and the next one will be out on this date. So you get a reminder so you don't forget because a lot of people are like, well, if I don't have it sitting on my nightstand or in front of me, I won't get around to it, but through emails push, hey, it's ready. So it's all part of the marketing genius behind that. And, you know, because Comixology is a big company too, you know, prior to the Eisner Awards to celebrate, they let us give it away for free for a week. So more people had a chance to to read it. And then, you know, we shut that down. And so any of the people that they've told about that, they have to pay for it. Or the ones that wait want to wait for the print. That's the other part. Like I remember this working on sex criminals where at conventions people would come up with collections and get us to sign them. They'd say that they were reading the book digitally, but they enjoyed it so much they wanted to get a print collection. So there's people that, you know, weirdly double dip on these things. Sometimes just to get it signed, sometimes because they just like it enough that they want to actually physically own it. Because the downside to digital is sometimes you don't actually own a copy. Like you're basically renting. If Comixology shuts down, then where is your library, you know? For sure. Well, we've come to the segment now where we kick back with the creator, creators, and I ask you the fun questions I ask all my guests. Chip, we'll start with you. Recreation. What do you like to do for recreation? How do you relax? Oh, my God. I don't know. I just don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I work all the time. I mean, reading novels, and I, I moved out west for the winter to British Columbia, so I'm able to actually go out kayak during the winter, which has been fun. Oh, wow. Nice. What do you think, Jason? For me, during the summertime, I love biking around the city, Toronto, uh, just discovering new alleyways and easy paths for me to circle around home as well as customizing star wars action figures and uh just recently i i got into like this building miniature furniture for them wow yeah <laughs> that's, that's pretty serious that's a while yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, that's a legit it, hobby i wish i had something like that it's pretty amazing 
I'm hoping like when I reach that age of retirement that I can dedicate a basement or like a room to like my Star Wars dioramas and like every room would be well furnished <laughs> every single detail. That could happen. Just don't get married. <laughs> <laughs> Someone will have something to say about that. My girlfriend's like, she's been pretty encouraging with that. So that's really helped. And, and right. I've built some furniture for our custom action figures. I actually like made custom action figures of ourselves and then made a little living room set for our action figures at her place and my place. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Sorry, I don't want to put any pressure on you, but when you uh, when you guys get married, you're absolutely going to have to design the whole like wedding scenario with Star Wars characters on the cake. Yeah, on the cake. Yeah, yeah, edible Star Wars figures. <laughs> <laughs> well, that requires me to bake now. I don't know, but I can definitely try to come up with the concept design of a cake topper, maybe like a Cloud City setting. Ooh, I like it. That's nice. Very nice. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> Not a Dagobah setting. Just this disgusting looking cake. (laughs) Green. (laughs) Now, for each of you, your favorite birthday. What was your favorite birthday and why? Chip. (laughs) That's a hard one because my birthday is December 21st, which Mm. um, is a terrible birthday. Like as a kid, all your friends are usually off school at that point and like doing Christmas holiday stuff. So you don't really have the opportunity to have proper birthday parties. As an adult, it also sucks for those reasons. And it's like the dead of winter. It's the longest night of the year. So I get the least amount of daylight <laughs> in the year Aww. for my birthday. <laughs> This year, because I'm out west, my in-laws live out here, and they decided to treat me to a um, floating hot tub down the river. Oh, wow. Nice. So I'm like, oh, this might actually be like a decent birthday. It turned out to be the coldest, snowy, sleet, icy day of the year here in Victoria, British Columbia. And so we were in this hot tub, just floating down this big river, just being pelted with ice. Like our heads were freezing. We were just like kind of trapped out there and the winds meant we couldn't actually like travel back time. And there was like a giant boat bearing down on us. It was a bit of a nightmare, but memorable. I've never heard of that before. Floating hot tub. It's called a hot tug. A hot tug. Ah, okay. I hesitate to name it because it sounds like uh, other things. (laughs) But (laughs) it's weird to say I did a hot tug with my in-laws for my birthday, but... That's what I did this year. <laughs> that was my COVID birthday. That was your best birthday so far? It might be, yeah. How about you? I do remember maybe when I was like seven and my mom invited five of my best friends from school to McDonald's, and which had a big play place. And mm. I remember I was so keen on like just being in a play place forever. Even though my mom was like, Jason, you got to eat. All my friends were like eating. I was like, no, it's my birthday. I'm going to be playing in this play place. There were times where I was just playing on the play place alone because everyone else was eating. (laughs) (laughs) And you're starving, but you just can't stop. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's why I was a skinny boy back then. Now, thinking back when you were in your teenager years, 12, 14, somewhere in there, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? (laughs) as teenagers yeah sadly had a giant secret wars 2 poster secret wars 2 ah 
was like an Al Milgram drawing of the Beyonder and yeah. all these superheroes floating towards him. Yeah. I had a few more Marvel posters up and I had one kind of like sexy lady poster up. But then I remember like when I turned 16, a girl was coming over and I was super embarrassed and I took down all the comic book posters and hid them in my closet and I just never put them back up. That was yeah. like the end of my youth, I think. Yeah, that Secret Wars 2 would be a deal breaker. You don't want to have a... How do you even explain that to someone? <laughs> like, who is, that, who is that floating metal god with the jerry curl? Disco outfit. <laughs> yeah, it's, just, it's, it's not even a good poster. Secret Wars 2. I'd have to explain that too. Oh, it's the sequel. To what? <laughs> <laughs> it's a ludicrous poster. <laughs> that poster hangs up at Marvel Comics. Whenever I go and visit, I walk down the hallway, like I walk by that poster and it's just like, it's such a weird feeling to be like this thing that I was so ashamed of that I also simultaneously love is now in the heart of the place where I work. Like it's very strange. How about you, Jason? When I was like four, one of my relatives, it might've been like my uncle gave me a poster of a Porsche in this thin gold frame. It's been in my room. Even though like we moved to a different house, we still put that up in my room. I was fascinated with like Hot Wheels. That's as far as I go as being a car buff. So seeing a poster of this Porsche, I was like, okay, like a Porsche is a big deal in, in a car's world. Okay. And beside that was a poster of uh, Joe Carter from <laughs> the 1992 World Series hitting a home run, which I got from a bank. Uh, <laughs> not a toaster a poster that's good yeah it also went beside a like a 1992 poster of the entire toronto blue jays team which probably came down when i was like 15 and and replaced with uh i know i had a teenage mutant ninja turtles the live action movie poster with all four of them just standing there there was like a purple foggy background which made them look cool yeah sounds cool now, this is the old island book question. You're stuck on a deserted island. You have one book or a set of books that are related to read for pleasure, not for survival purposes, because you're going to be there for a while. It can be a book, graphic novel, comic, whatever you want. Oh, man. That's a tricky one. I'm stumped. And if it's only one, I can name like maybe three, but I think Batman Year One. Yeah, that's definitely tied in third place. It's up there. Okay. That's such a good answer. I kind of want it to be mine as well, but I'll go with Daredevil Born Again to keep the Miller Mazzucchelli streak going here, which I think is probably the best Marvel comic of all time, those issues together. Both very good choices. And the other choice, this is when you're relaxing, not on an island, just relaxing, your beverage of choice, what would that be? Ooh, wow. When I went to Galaxy's Edge in Disney World, um one of the Star Wars cantina bars that they had. One of the theme drinks that they had was called the Yub Nub. Which <laughs> <laughs> and it's made of Malibu, a citrus juice, and I think mango juice. And there are maybe two other elements, but those were like the main core. As long as you have like those three ingredients, once in a while like I would make my own Yub Nub. And, <laughs> and, and, <laughs> uh, all right well i haven't had that answer before once in a while i make my own yub nub <laughs> the quote of the podcast um for me last year at this time 
uh, I was on my, I guess, final vacation pre-COVID. And uh, I'm not really a big vacation guy, but we went to um, New Zealand, but we stopped over in Tahiti first. We arrived at night and we were super tired and, you know, we're taking the bus to the hotel and it's dark out. And so the next morning, you wake up in a tropical paradise. I walked out onto the restaurant deck, which kind of overlooked the ocean and this other island. And it was so beautiful. I hadn't felt that relaxed in so long because I'd just been working for <laughs> what felt like years. And I hate pineapple. Pineapple just disgusts me. But my wife had ordered a fresh pineapple juice. I took a sip of it. It was the best thing I'd ever had. That might have been Yubnub. Actually, it, it was pineapple juice that was in a Yubnub. <laughs> Don't interrupt my story here. Yelp up talk. God damn it. So yeah, like it was a combination of like, I hadn't felt that relaxed in years. I was in paradise. I was with people I loved. I was sipping this fresh juice, which was unlike anything I'd ever had before. And uh, I remember the taste and the texture uh, extremely well. So I want that specific pineapple juice in that place. All right. For each of you, was there a missed opportunity? It could have been a gig, could have been a job, anything. That stands out in your mind. The one that got away, but it's an opportunity I'm speaking of. Jason? I'm sure there were, but at this point in my life, I think I've been able to just let go of them because you just got to keep moving forward. It's hard to think of one. Because, yeah, like at this point, it's like, yeah, just look at newer opportunities instead of looking back at old ones. I have this weird thing, which kind of drives my wife crazy, I think, where um, the road not taken is a disaster. If for some reason, like, uh, you know, I'm supposed to go to a party or something, I decide against it and I find out it was a great party or whatever. I think to myself, well, if I had gone to that party, I probably would have died on the way to the party. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> yeah. And, and, but these are legit things that I think. Uh-huh. Like the path that I'm on is such the correct path. Mm. I can't possibly have any regrets even when it seems like I should. There is one gig, a comic gig that I turned down which is not a regret at all, but it's mostly just kind of funny. Marvel offered me uh, The Vision before Tom King, and I thought about it, and I ended up just turning it down. I didn't really have a vision story, and I remember Matt Fraction, I told him that, and he's like, what are you doing? It's about a crying robot. That's exactly what you should be writing. <laughs> like, for, some, for some reason, he begged me as like, you're the crying robot guy. That would be very yeah. funny to to read a comic you put where it that you way. Write robot but obviously what tom wrote for vision was much much better than anything i would have come up with and it was a huge success and there's yes. a tv show on about it currently that's right well dovetailing off of that you're staying on the path you're on have they ever taken a risk finish the phrase i took a risk when we'll exclude the hot tug that was a bit of a risk <laughs> jason i'm usually a guy that played it safe i think the only risk i've ever taken to an average person it's probably not risky but like it's probably just asking for what I want, just being blunt about it. And hopefully it would come through. And sometimes it does. Not going to say any specifics, but like there were times I would ask a favor or something from someone I would never thought would fulfill that favor. And then it came through and I'm blown away and like find myself like grateful that the person would say yes to that. Risks. Uh, I don't know. Everything feels like a risk. I don't think you actually gain anything without taking some sort of risk. Even Jason agreeing to do this book was a risk because like, he could have lost a ton of time working on something that part of it was out of his hands because maybe I'm a shitty writer. Um, <laughs> I, could, I could have tanked maybe. this career. I feel like accepting work, looking for work, turning stuff down in, in terms of career 
those can all be risks. In my personal life, I was more of a risk taker when I was younger, kind of doing dumb stunts and things like that, whether rappelling down buildings or jumping out of planes. It's a risk reward, right? If you want the reward, you kind of have to take a bit of a risk. Not taking any risks. Do you still have guilty pleasures, though? Things that you each like to do that uh, maybe you love to read Secret Wars, too. I don't know. But some guilty <laughs> – some. I'm sorry. Some guilty pleasure. I don't think there's such a thing as a guilty pleasure. I mean, if you feel guilt over your pleasure, that's something you take up with your therapist. There's pleasure and there's not pleasure. Maybe a guilty pleasure is something like illegal or you think something you think is immoral or unethical, <laughs> in which case you should probably not do it. In terms of like a base pleasure, I don't know, just like getting lost in a YouTube hole of Kitchen Nightmares or Dragon's Den or just one of those stupid reality shows. That'll kill hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And like, I suppose I do feel guilt over that because it, it's taking me away from doing the actual work. And that's probably the extent of it. For me, it's putting aside once a year a time to watch Star Wars The Holiday Special. Oh, oh my. <laughs> I take it back. There is such a thing as guilty pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so bad, but it's a drinking event for me every year. And sometimes the past few years, I've been able to share it with someone that has never seen it before every year and just seeing their responses to it <laughs> really entertains me just, just invite them over sit them down pour them a yub nub and put on the holiday special <laughs> jason lou christmas yep <laughs> so my final question what's next for each one of you and that can be your next job your work or pleasure jason there are uh, some comic projects ahead that are yet to be announced that we hope to see this year. It's true. I think it's safe to say that Jason and I are going to work together again. Very good. You're so fast. Like are you, you must be drawing <laughs> other stuff, Jason. I am. The other stuff uh, I still can't say yet either. Gotcha. <laughs> and the secrets. In the meantime, coming up on February 3rd, Afterlift will be available. And it is available on Comixology right now. Chip and Jason, thank you so much for being on Creator Talks. Thanks for having us. Yeah, see. All right, my friends, that wraps it up for this week. My interview with Chip Zdarsky and Jason Liu. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to helping the show reach new listeners. And I have more interviews coming up in the weeks ahead. I have one coming up in a couple of weeks I meant to have out today. The one about the great American leader, well, that will be coming out on a very special day in February. Plus, I have a special interview which coincides with Black History Month. And I'll have a guest on the show who has been on another podcast recently. I know some of my listeners are going to really enjoy hearing this guest talk about themselves, their work, and Tom Cruise. And I have another interview coming up with a returning guest who is striking out on his own to continue the publication of his comic book. Why did he leave the publisher he had secured for his comic book? We're going to find out why. And probably talk a bit about horror television, too. Yes, it's not Halloween, but to me, Halloween should be kept every day of the year. So we're going to get into some fun conversation about horror TV shows and movies we love. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of what's coming to you through Creator Talks in February and early March. And occasionally now, I will be posting books from my collection, occasionally on Saturdays and Sundays, when I pick up something new of interest or it somehow coincides with a guest that I have on the show that week. And I also be posting occasionally some of the vinyl that's in my collection. Yes, some of it is vintage, some of it is newly acquired, and I am listening to more vinyl now 
when I rest and relax at home. And I'm also getting a chance to read some new books. That Ditko Shrugged came in this week, so I'm reading that. The author David Curie was on my show, so please check that out if you haven't heard it already. And I'm also reading Dune, a copy of which Mrs. Creator Talks gifted me. She knew that was on my bucket list, and so I'm getting a chance to read it. Thank you, dear. Thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast for Creator Talks. I have been your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.